0: Well, thank you so much for joining us. The new atheists have done a lot to try to make atheism the domain of the cool while dismissing Christianity as the religion of the boring, the stupid, possibly the scientifically and philosophically inept. The problem with that characterization is that when you begin to dig into the arguments in favor of atheism, it is in fact that side of the aisle that is revealed as inept. And all it takes is some hole poking in their favorite arguments to see why that is the case. And that's exactly what my next guest has done. Dr. Andy Bannister is the director and lead apologist for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries in Canada. He speaks and teaches regularly throughout Canada, the U.S., Europe, and the wider world. And today we're going to be talking about his book. It is called The Atheist Who Didn't Exist. And Andy, it's so great to have you here. How are you?
3: I'm doing well, Janet. Thanks for having me on the show. How are you doing today?
0: Oh, just fine. Thank you for being with us. You know, I think one of the best things that you've done with your book is you use humor to try to poke the holes in the arguments of these atheists. Why do you think that's a good approach to use humor or even satire to show what their position really is?
3: I think two, two reasons, Janet. One is I, had a, I have a theory that a, a lot of phenomenally good responses to the new atheism, uh, often written by Christians, don't get read by our atheist friends, sometimes because they're boring or sometimes because you don't often read stuff from the other side. And so I wanted to write a book that would sort of penetrate the defenses that my atheist friends would actually enjoy reading. Even if they disagree with me, they'd enjoy reading. Right. And then secondly, I think humor is a great leveler. We've all had that experience, haven't we? Perhaps a conversation with a friend or colleague gets a bit heated and then somebody cracks a joke, everybody sort of laughs at it, and it diffuses things. So it was really an attempt to get the book into places that it wouldn't otherwise reach.
0: Well, what do you think are your primary concerns about the new atheists and the credibility that a lot of them have accumulated in the public square? Should that be a cause for concern among Christians?
3: I think so, and I love the way you, you angled the question, because I think when the New Atheism kicked off 10 years ago, I, I sort remember looking at it thinking, this is really interesting, but it's going to be a cultural bubble that will burst. And I've been surprised that it's, that it's kept running, and that a lot of the arguments that the likes of Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and others popularized have become so mainstream. So that led me to, to want to write the book. But I think my biggest concern with much of the New Atheism is that The arguments are so shallow. It's really an attempt to engage in argument by soundbite, and the problem is that the whole God question is a very serious and very a very uh, a very intense area of discussion that I think needs time. And I get frustrated when Christians engage in kind of sort of argument by soundbite. We're not immune from it, but my word, our atheist friends aren't either. And the whole book really is an appeal to people to put aside bad arguments, put aside lazy arguments, to have a sensible discussion. I say to my readers: Look, by all means, be an atheist if you wish. I'd rather you're not, but I sure sure be one. But if you're going to be an atheist, do be a thought through one and step back from some of these really bad arguments that are out there.
0: Excellent. That's a really good thing to say. Now, one of the things a lot of us are familiar with are these bus ads that were appearing in England that said, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. This is the focus of your first chapter, where you point out this is really a bad argument to try to swap out God for other imaginary things. And you talk about the Loch Ness Monster. Explain what you're talking about there.
3: Well, I think the thing that intrigued me when those bus ads started running around London then they came across to America, they've certainly been in New York and Washington and I think a few other kind of cities, we have them now in Canada, is when you read that, that ad, uh, there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. It sounds quite clever when you first see it. But then, like so many of these atheist arguments, you stop and ask a couple of questions. And uh, one of the questions I ask in the book is, look, if God doesn't exist, what difference does that actually make, particularly if you're, somebody whose life is in a pretty negative place. I mean, imagine that perhaps you've lost your job, your family's broken up, you're in ill health, or, you know, life has dealt you a sort of fairly sticky hand of, hand of cards. And, uh, you know, along comes the new atheist bus and say, hey, don't worry, there's no God. I think a lot of people will look at that bus ad and go, well, hang on a minute, I'm worried because my mortgage is about to default and, you know, there's, there's no prospects around the corner. What difference does that make? In fact, it's as much sense as saying there's no Loch Ness Monster, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. Uh, and I, so I think the whole thing is inane. And then of course that ad also then focuses on enjoyment, which I also take on a little bit in the book. The idea that the whole point of life is about enjoyment is a very shallow view of life. The only things in this world, Janet, that are designed to be enjoyed and only enjoyed are products, like a soda or a chocolate bar or something. And your life is not a product. Mm. Enjoyment is just one small part of the human experience. And so that atheist bus ad is not merely wrong, it's, it's, it's sophomoric, it's, uh, it's inane.
0: It is. And that's a great point, too, that when we talk about enjoying something, we're generally talking about eating a candy bar, as you said, we're not talking about life. It minimizes, in a way, the seriousness of life, doesn't it? To say, it doesn't matter, just have fun. You know, whoever has the most toys at the end wins. sort of that, that angle on life, that it's something sort of flighty and not to be worried about.
3: I think so. And I think what's sort of the interesting thing is I, what, I, what led me into writing the book, many things led me to write the book. But one of the things that, that led me there was atheist friends who would, who would express their frustration with some of this stuff. Because I think atheism is deeper. That. I think it's a very bad representation of atheism, and I think one of the interesting things I discovered as I researched the book is if you read an older generation of atheists, people like Bertrand Russell, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, or the list goes on, who were writing you know, sort of in the, last cent- in the last century, or a little bit further back than that, they were very willing to admit that atheism had some pretty drastic consequences. And to be an atheist required courage. You had to face up to the fact that if you're going to say that there's no God, then that does mean that life has no meaning. It means there's no basis for goodness and beauty and truth. And so, therefore, an atheist is someone who's going to... It's a fairly brave stand, and there's a high cost for atheism. The new atheism, on the other hand, I say, is a very cheap form of atheism. Uh, You know, along comes Richard Dawkins, who says, yeah, you know what, you can do away with God, and hey, you can still have enjoyment, and you can still have morality, and you can still have kittens and rainbows and unicorns, and isn't life wonderful? And it's a very, very cheap form of atheism. I've got a lot more respect for atheists, as I say, of that older generation who are willing to say, yeah, you know what, there are some consequences to this, and you know, we're, we're at least willing to, to consider them.
0: Right. So in some ways, would you say the modern New Atheist movement is a bit intellectually dishonest?
3: Well, I think actually, I, I, I hadn't thought about this until the other day when another radio interviewer made the point that, you know, we've got the same phenomena going on in, in Christianity. Um, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the very kind of German pastor, who talked about cheap grace, that you know, we have this tendency to preach a very light form of the gospel. And I think what we have in atheism or contemporary atheism is cheap atheism. We <laughs> live in a culture that tries to reduce everything to sound bites. And so you meet Christians whose faith is, is, you know, millimeter thin and reduced to sort of sound bites and platitudes. And our atheist friends have gone the same direction. So I think perhaps it's to be fair to our atheist friends There's a symptom here of something bigger going on in Western culture that we don't stop and think deeply. You know, we we, we skip from one tweeted thought uh, to another, endlessly distracted by the Internet and not actually willing to stop, pause and reflect on the deeper questions of life.
0: Right. If it isn't 140 characters, why spend any time on it? That's exactly right. (laughs) Exactly right. Well, what about atheism itself as a belief system? We've seen some of these new atheists deny that atheism really is a belief system. What do you think about it?
3: Well, it's, uh, it's interesting, I, I, I talk about this in the second chapter of the book that I, I used to run into, still do, run into atheists who you know, ardently tell me, vehemently tell me that their atheism is not a belief, it's a non-belief, it's merely the absence of a belief in God. In fact, I had a massive argument sort of, with three atheists last night on Facebook to this end, and um, my favorite expression of this is the late new atheist Christopher Hitchens, who said our belief is not a belief. Right. And that sounds very clever when you first hear it, because it allows uh, the atheist who says that to sort of stand there and sort of say, well, you Christians have got to defend what you believe, but I don't have to defend what I believe. It's not a belief. (laughs) And uh, in the book, I I seek to show uh, that that's actually not the case at all. I think atheism is a belief. System. And if you try and say that it isn't, it has all kinds of unintended consequences. If you say that to be an atheist is merely to lack belief in God, well, you know what? Stones and rocks and kittens and rubber chickens and the coffee on my desk, they all lack a belief in God. So presumably, they're atheists. And that doesn't sound quite right. That immediately you go, no, that has to be wrong. Yeah, told you that it probably is
0: for sure. And as Christians, we definitely deny things in upholding the gospel, upholding the, the the word of God. We have to deny other things. Denying is part of believing something.
3: I think so. That's a, that's a lovely way of putting it. That exactly. That at the moment you believe something, you tend to deny the the antecedent uh, to that. I also think as well, when you begin exploring it, there are some hallmarks of belief one of the signs that, that, someone, that something is a belief for somebody is if it causes them to do something. So I'm a, you know, I'm a Christian, and that causes me to behave in certain ways. It causes me to, to try and follow Jesus and to live that out in my life. And so there are certain behaviors that follow.
0: Absolutely. Well, a- hang on, Andy, hang on. We'll let you finish the thought. We're going to come back. The Atheist Who Didn't Exist, Andy Bannister, joining us on Janet Mefford today. Stay with us. Hi, this is Janet Mefford, and I'm joined today by Matt Bellis with Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, the rising costs of health insurance have really taken a toll on a lot of people, especially during this pandemic. Why do your members recommend Liberty Health Share?
2: Well, it really does change the way that you approach healthcare when it comes to health care sharing. Because each individual member of Liberty HealthShare is what we call a self-pay patient or a private pay patient, where we're each individually responsible and able to guide and manage and direct our own health care free from the constraints of government controls or third-party insurance systems. It really changes the whole methodology by which you approach health care to where you start seeing yourself as the owner of your health, rather than just somebody who's entitled to a program because you paid some money. And we see lower costs, greater accessibility, and frankly, better outcomes.
0: Tell us about the personal interaction that your members experience with Liberty HealthShare.
2: Well, it's important in Liberty HealthShare to know that we're not just bodies in need of getting our bodies fixed. <laughs> we're also spiritual beings that need to be in relationship and connection with other people. So in our system, online system that we call share box we have what we call a prayer box where our members come together to pray for each other in times of need to help support one another and let everyone know that you're not alone during these times that are unprecedented and can be very lonely you've got an entire nationwide community right behind you praying for you here for you as an individual and a member.
0: Thanks, Matt. More information about Liberty HealthShare is available at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT or their phone number is 855-585-4237.
2: You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet
0: Back on Janet Meffer today, Andy Banister is joining us. He is director and lead apologist for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries Canada, and the author of "The Atheist Who Didn't Exist." And Andy, unfortunately, had to cut you off a little bit. There no problem. going to commercial, but go ahead with your point because I think you were making a great point about this whole issue of uh, denial and belief systems.
3: That's right so just before the break Janet we were talking about the idea that one of the signs that something is a belief is it causes you to do something so my belief in Jesus causes me to do things it causes me to act certain ways that's a sign it's a belief or well, what about atheism If atheism was merely a non-belief, then it would presumably do nothing. But atheism seems to be a pretty busy uh, belief system. It causes many of my atheist friends to, you know, change their Twitter profiles to little pictures of the flying spaghetti monster. It causes them to buy books by a Richard Dawkins. In fact, it caused Richard Dawkins to write his book. And so on it goes. So for a non-belief, it looks fairly busy. And then the other sign of a belief is that it can be community-forming for hmm. somebody. It can be identity-forming. So perhaps, you know, you or I might introduce ourselves to people at a dinner party by saying, you know, I'm, a, I'm Andy Bannister, I'm a Christian. Um, now, atheism does the same thing. I know people who will introduce themselves at events and say they are an atheist. Hmm. They change their social media profile to say atheists. They, uh, they even attend atheist churches. There are atheist churches now uh, springing up in major cities around the world. All of that suggests to me very strongly that for many people, at least, not all, but for many people, atheism is a belief system, and for some, I think it's even crossed the line and become a religion.
0: Oh, absolutely. This is an interesting thing you also bring up in the book, the argument that atheists make, particularly, I think, of Dawkins, who says he just goes one God further when he denies the God of the Bible. You know, you (coughs) deny Apollo, you deny Zeus, Christians, so I'm Mm. just taking it one further. Why must we look at that statement and say, that's a false argument to be making?
3: Well, you know what, when I first heard that argument, Janet, it's another example. So often these things sound really clever until you, you dig into them. The idea that, you know, Christians deny every other god, so, you know, Richard Dawkins just goes one god further and denies Yahweh. The problem with that idea is it fails to recognize there are lots of, exa- lots of times in life where we might be presented with multiple possibilities and we have to pick the right answer. The example I use in the book is, uh, is you think of a course of law, where perhaps the police have in, uh, interviewed perhaps 10 or 12 possible suspects for the crime, rejected all of them, and one, uh, one uh, guy is singled out as the, as the villain and is put on trial. And if that criminal stood before the judge and went, Your Honour, I've been discriminated against. The police have rejected 11 other suspects. Your Honour, I encourage you, just go one suspect further and let <laughs> me go. The judge would look at him and go, what a ridiculous argument. The question <laughs> is the evidence, and the evidence points to you, sir. Yeah. And I think so it is when it comes to the, the question of, of God. Yes, there are the, throughout human history, there have been various belief systems and religions out there. Well, that means we actually need to investigate the evidence. And when I, think, I think when it comes to Christianity, the evidence is overwhelmingly greater than for any other worldview. And I speak as somebody who, who did a PhD in Islam and has studied Islam for, for 20 years, partly because I wanted to sort of really get my head around perhaps the second biggest competing candidate. I think the evidence for Christianity is head and shoulders above everything else, not least because Christianity is the only historically verifiable religion. Because either Jesus walked and talked in history about 2,000 years ago and was who he claimed to be, or he wasn't. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, which is a historical claim, then Christianity falls instantly. So Christianity is very verifiable.
0: Absolutely. Well, you raise the issue of Islam, and I think that this is a good point to kind of segue into Christopher Hitchens again, because he wrote that best-selling book, God is Not Great, Mm. How Religion Poisons Everything. What is your response to this idea that religion, you know, as if we're all the same, all act the same, all have the same belief system, all have the same morals, all have the same view of politics, etc., etc. How is it that religion does not poison everything, and what distinctions would you make in Mm. refuting Hitchens?
3: Well, firstly, the moment you say that anything does you know whatever you're at risk of a gross oversimplification i mean i might for example say that, that hats poison everything because i look through the history of sort of world dictators and notice that joseph stalin and adolf hitler and a few others were all addicted to headgear and so i might therefore go well hats poison everything and you'd look at me and go yeah andy i think you've missed that you sort of uh, missed the missed the plot you've lost the plot somehow yeah that that wasn't causative but but there we are My other problem with the idea that religion poisons everything, Janet, is it doesn't go far enough. You could substitute the word religion in that sentence for other words. Science poisons everything. Look at the environmental damage science has done. Uh, Government poisons everything. Most wars in human history have been caused by government. Sex poisons everything. It causes rape and human trafficking and pornography, and the list goes on. And the more you do that, the more you realize something. The problem is not with sex or government or politics or science or any of those things or religion, quite frankly. The problem is closer to home. The problem is us, human beings. We have this ability to pick up things, religion, science, politics, sexuality, and use them for great good or use them for great evil. It points to that kind of fracture in the middle of the human condition, right. which is, of course, something the Bible calls sin, which of leads course. us right into the gospel, because I think it raises the question of how do we deal with that break and that fracture in the human condition? What worldview can actually address what's wrong with us? Right. And, and I don't think atheism can even touch that question.
0: And it brings to mind, I think it was G.K. Chesterton, who was asked, what is the greatest problem in the universe? And his answer was, I am. Oh, yes. There right. you go. I mean, that, that that is the biggest problem in the universe. But what What do you think of the atheist rejection of the idea of the sinfulness of man?
3: I think at the end of the day it's uh, it's an idea that many of my atheist friends hold on to, but I think as Chesterton since you brought him up, also said uh, on one occasion, he said original sin is the one empirically empirically verifiable Christian doctrine. Yes, you just open your newspaper, turn on the television news he would have said if he lived today and uh, and look around. you see it everywhere, and the more I think you take a long view through history, the more you if you look widely around the world today, I think it becomes very, very difficult to maintain an idea that human beings are basically good. And I often say to my atheist friends, one of the things that makes me convince the gospel is true is the world is full of worldviews that will tell me I'm basically okay. Islam tells me I'm basically okay, just keep a few commandments. And Buddhism tells me I'm basically okay, just let go of one or two desires. Atheism says, yeah, you're basically okay, look at you, great pinnacle of the evolutionary pillar that you are. And I look at myself in my quieter moments and go, "But I'm not okay. I know I can be very, very kind. I also know I can be beastly. I can be vindictive. I know what I'm like on the inside. And then I read the Gospels, and Jesus tells me that. Right. Um, you know, I love the fact the Bible affirms, the, uh, affirms humanity, it says that we're made in the image of God, uh, which, may, which is a lofty claim that you'll find in no other worldview. But the Bible also tells us the truth about ourselves and says that we're broken, right. and only in Jesus can we find life. And I think that honesty about what we're really like in the gospel, is unique to Christianity. And I think uh, you can very quickly show an atheist, I think, who's willing to be sort of reflective, that we are far, far, far from being you know, uh, a generally good uh, species. It's far more complex.
0: It is. When you look at the new atheists, though, and I think again of Dawkins, somebody with great intellectual ability in many regards, and Hitchens as well, some others, there is this sense in which Christians have targeted these men and said, What you're really doing is trying to take man and put him in the place of God, and you really don't want to acknowledge that perhaps there is a mind brighter than yours with accomplishments you could never dream of accomplishing, and you can't stand to the idea of any sort of higher moral authority. How does that come into play, do you think, in their minds, if at all?
3: You know, I think it, I think it's true, Jenna, on a couple of levels. I think you're right that when we stop worshiping God, we end up worshiping something. Um, again, Chesterton, actually, to stick with him, they, you know, said that uh, you know when men stop worshiping God, they don't worship nothing; they worship anything. Yeah. And uh, and I think that's true. We are inherently worshiping creatures, and if it's not God we worship, it will be something like career or money or national pride or something. All of which are pretty dangerous things to make the centre uh, of your life. Problem number number one. And then I think the, the other issue is the one that you, you touched on there, that I think lying behind many atheists, not all, but, but many, is something much more complex than, than an intellectual rejection of God. It's a moral rejection. And a desire to be independent. I quote in the book, uh, Aldous Huxley, you know, the sort of famous atheist of a few generations ago, who I love fact he admitted this. He admits very, very clearly. He said, For, you know, myself and many others in my generation, he said, we wanted to live a certain way, particularly a, a, a certain way in terms of our sexual behavior. We realized that morally that wasn't possible. But then we decided the easiest way to allow ourselves to do that was just reject the moral framework and reject the God who made it all possible. And he openly admits that his atheism was driven uh, by a desire to, to sort of be fulfilled in his mind sexually. And you can find atheist writers today, I think, who are willing to sort of admit, you know, it's not so much that the argue, the evidence isn't convincing, they just want their freedom. And I think that, in one sense, I can, I can respect some of that, because that the Gospel ultimately is not about a game of intellectual chess at which Christians try and beat atheists. The question of the Gospel is, to who, who is Lord? Right. Is it me, right. or is it Christ? And that ultimately is going to come to a clash, isn't it? We either lay down arms and wave the white flag and say, Jesus, you're Lord, or we say, well, I'm going to make something else Lord in your place. Um, But all of us are going to serve something.
0: That's it. That's well said. When you go to the question of Jesus, which you do at the end of the book, why we really can know a lot about Jesus, why is this a salient point for the atheists? Because you do hear some atheists just disregard Jesus altogether and, and pay no attention to him, but he is the central figure in human history. How do you answer that point about knowing enough about Jesus to know that he is Lord, or at least to have to be confronted with the reality that he claimed to be Lord?
3: Well, I think the interesting thing for me about Jesus in conversations with atheists is he makes the question very personal. It's very easy to talk about God in the abstract, you know, the kind of God of the philosophers. You know, is there a God out there, some great architect who designed everything? But the moment you start talking about Jesus, if his claims about himself are true, suddenly we don't have a God who is out there somewhere, but we have a God who is very close and personal. We have a God whose nose is pressed up against the window, who's knocking at the door, you know, and demanding to be let in, and that's very scary, I think for some atheists, it suddenly becomes a lot more than just the theoretical. And so for many atheists I meet, I think that leads to the question of, well, how can we not even go there? And so that, that's why some leap in, like Dawkins and others have done, into the kind of Jesus never existed <laughs> argument. It's a very easy way to avoid having to deal with the whole question. But it's an appallingly bad argument that's, that's extremely poorly evidenced uh, simply because the historical evidence for the life of Jesus is so tremendous. And so where I land the book is really an appeal to the atheist reader to go go back to the Gospels, read them try and read them with a relatively open mind read them like you would read any work of ancient history don't you don't have to take them as scripture just read right. them right. and ask yourself the question as you do who is this character
0: I love it I love it who is this Jesus Andy Bannister great book the atheist who didn't exist Andy thank you so much for being Thanks with a us lot, Janet. All right we'll be back after this This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com.
2: This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford.
0: Welcome back to Janet Meffer today. It is a bad time to be a boy. In America. Well, those are the words of author Christina Hoff Summers about 20 years ago when she wrote her book, The War Against Boys. And we do see this war on boys in our culture, but at the same time, you think of the words of Psalm 119, 9, which says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. So what are some of the choices young men should be making in order to live in a great way? We're going to talk about it today with Dr. Clarence Schuler, who is the president and CEO of BLR, Building Lasting Relationships. He is the author of several books, including his latest with Gary Chapman. It's called Choose Greatness. And Clarence, it's just great to have you here.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me on the show, Janet. I'm really excited to be with you.
0: Well, I'm excited to talk to you. I, I'm wondering what are some of your concerns about young men these days? Because we have seen this war against boys and a, you know, attacks on what's called toxic masculinity, all of these things we see in the news every day. How do you see life for boys these days and young men?
1: Well, for boys or young men, we think it's tougher to be a man today than ever before. You know, social media and television kind of have men as being just uh, not very smart. And I think for young guys, there's so many things thrown at them um, that it's, it's hard for them to make real good decisions. So we were really trying to get out in front of that and help them, get them some ideas of issues they're facing and how they can make some good choices about the issues that they're facing.
0: That's great. Well, you talk about the fact that great lives don't happen by accident. Can you talk a little bit about that for young men who might be listening who say, well, wait a minute, if I'm destined to be great, I'm just going to be great. But in fact, there's more to it than that.
1: Well, there's much more to it than that. You know, you really have to work hard at it. You have to, uh, for guys who are athletic, you have to have sort of a point guard mentality. We have to see the whole floor as opposed to just having the ball in scoring. And so we're trying to teach guys to take a a big look at what's coming down the road. And we try to help them understand a whole lot of process that you have uh, choices, you make decisions and there are consequences. So we're really trying to help them to that you have to really think about this and you have to really be intentional about what you want to do, because what you do will impact your life, sometimes for the rest of your life.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Do you have an end goal in mind when you talk about being a great man? What would you say defines a great man?
1: Oh, great question. Uh, Well, I think uh, integrity, you know, character, but also uh, in our book, Choose Greatness, as they go through the book, it really helps them to get to know themselves, who they are. So, because Gary and I talk about different issues, but we also have questions at the end of the book. So each guy can evaluate what they just read in the context of how they're living life now. Uh, So we think that's really important. But you really, for me, uh, one of the end goals is that we want great men to be able to be uh, great husbands yes and and then to be great fathers and we think this lays the foundation for guys to do that
0: i love that well let's talk about some of these wise decisions you kick things off by saying that men should choose to seek wisdom from parents or trusted adults why is that such a foundational thing for young men to do to seek wisdom from those who are either their mom and dad or from other adults that they admire
1: Well, the reality of it is when you're a teenager or or a young man, there's a natural tendency to to look at life now, but don't think about long-term consequences. And so to have your parents or uh, a substitute dad who's lived life, who's a good man, uh, they can impart tremendous wisdom on you and help you not make some mistakes they have made or just make some mistakes you would make on your own without their help. So their wisdom really uh, tremendously gets you great input and understanding. Yeah, that's And young true. guys really want an older guy to talk to. They just want somebody who's authentic and transparent.
0: Well, what about the young man who says, you know, my parents don't know anything, you know, they're, they're old, they don't understand what life's like for me today. How would you disabuse them of that notion?
1: Well, what I tell them really is going to happen in life, that the older that young man gets, the smarter his parents are going to become. <laughs> it's <laughs> so, true. Uh, <laughs> And you know, I, I think the issue is that we tend to take our parents or anyone in leadership for granted. But I, and, and you know, they you keep hearing the same voice, and so uh, which, which is understandable. And in fact, some of my friends have have actually gotten my book and and said, "Hey, you know, I want my sons to read this or my nephews to read this because they need to hear a different voice, a fresh voice." Mm. And so Gary and I hope that we're reaffirming what their parents or that trusted father substitute is saying anyway. But it is based on lives of living uh, an experience that these young guys don't have yet.
0: Yeah, that's so true. What about seeking knowledge through education? This is another wise decision that you advocate young men to do. Um, what What is that about in seeking knowledge through education? Why do you believe that's such an important part of seeking greatness and choosing greatness? Well, one
1: of my friends says, if you don't really study now, that the people you think aren't really smart but go through school, you'll be calling them boss later. Yeah. But we, uh, we think that education lays the foundation for you as to how you're going you know, to define your finances. You know, what kind of job you're going to get. Uh, we, we let uh, young men know that if you just go to high school and get a diploma, you'll make a certain amount. But if you go to college, you make even more money. And for those guys who want to be a great athletes, we've actually found through research that the longer you stay in, in college, that the better your chance of being a professional athlete. Wow. So, so being in education just has tremendous uh, benefits all, you know, just all the way around. And if these young guys decide they want to be a father, then that education can be a foundation for them to teach their own sons and daughters.
0: Very good. Very good. And you also talk about technology. How does technology fit into this pattern of choosing greatness? How can you make technology work for you, and why does that matter?
1: Well, there's several things to do with technology. I, I think technology can be a good thing, but it can also be misused. Uh, one thing we tell young men in communicating that, you know, technology should just be for information, but emotional issues or very personal issues you don't want to share uh, through social media because one, it can be misinterpreted. Because you don't get to see a person face to face or you don't hear voice inflections, and so it it just excuse me create more problems with technology sure. uh things that should be done personal at, at the very least by phone but hopefully face to face. The other issue that we talk about uh, in the book with technology is the whole issue of uh one the is sexting and sexting is taking nude pictures of yourself or your girlfriend. That can create all kind of problems, and uh, in some states, sexting based on your age uh, can even be a felony. So we try and jump out in front and just be very realistic about some of the choices and consequences from dealing with technology
0: oh golly it's such a it's such a challenge for so many parents i know my husband and i tell our kids the internet is forever (laughs) you know i mean it is terrifying i think for for us parents out there knowing what kids are like and knowing what can happen if a kid is a real kid and doing silly things on the internet that can come up when you go out for your first job interview i mean there's no telling what can happen down the road if you do something stupid online
1: Well, you know, what you just said about job interviews, it happens all the time, and smart companies actually Google young people and get that information, which a lot of times is very public, and people don't get jobs because someone's done research on them, something they did when they were 12, 13, 14, travels with them when they go in that office for their interview.
0: Yeah, that's right. What what kind of advice would you give, for example, to a young man who is maybe 17, 18, on what you should not do online? You mentioned, obviously, you should never be sexting anybody or doing anything inappropriate like that. But what sorts of other advice would you say, you know, don't do this, don't do that, watch out for this pitfall over here?
1: Well, I I think I'd just be very careful. You know, I I wouldn't, i try my best not to say negative things about people um, on the internet. I would, even keep some of my political views you know to myself uh, and so i i just think again it sounds real simple but i just you know hey we want to meet somewhere at a certain time or hey i like this organization because they do this or this school or hey we had a great game and so-and-so scores many points and it was fun watching them play something really simple you know is what i use the internet for but yeah. my personal innermost feelings i would not put that on the internet because i think you can be taken advantage of, and just a lot of different things like that. And there yeah. are predators on the internet as well. Oh yeah, you know, that, that pursue uh, young boys. So I just really, I'd just really be, I'd err on the air of being super cautious than super liberal and putting everything i have out on the internet
0: no i agree with you there and i found that saying get off social media altogether probably isn't a good option that would be my preference but i know (laughs) i have
1: zero chance we do take uh, a hiatus from sometimes or or just a fast from it for you know a week or two and and you know find out hey they really don't miss it that much oh it's true but the fear that young people have is that they don't want to miss out on anything.
0: I know. Oh, man, such a battle. Well, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with Dr. Clarence Schuler. The book is called Choose Greatness, 11 Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make. Stay with us. We'll be back. If you could provide God's Word to a Bible-less believer elsewhere in the world, would you? Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send that Bible today. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere is found lacking, we're encouraged to help provide it. These believers live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of Christianity, and where Bibles are scarce. As Pastor Carlo in Peru says, they need the hope found only in God's Word. Everyone wants to
1: read the Bible, but what happens, there are a few copies here in the area. Many of them will uh, be sharing a single Bible.
0: For only $5, believers around the world will receive Bibles and be discipled in their new faith. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20. And because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800 E S W O 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The
3: sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum
0: of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace, to Mom, thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. And now through a match, your gift is doubled. All gifts are tax-deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. 855-402-BABY. 402 baby or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com
2: you're listening to janet mefford today and now here's janet
0: We are back on Janet Meffer today. Glad you're here and really glad to be talking with Dr. Clarence Schuler, president and CEO of BLR, Building Lasting Relationships. And he's out with a new book with Gary Chapman called Choose Greatness, 11 Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make. Such a good book, Clarence, because this is something that every parent of a young man would wish that that young man would follow. And I think you've got some really good advice here. One of the things that you advise young men to do is to choose to be successful and work hard. Now, I kind of laughed at this a little bit because I thought, <laughs> you know, you would like to think that your kids would automatically want to work hard and, and uh, put put their nose to the grindstone and make sure that they're giving everything their best. But really, this is, in all honesty, this is something that a lot of kids have to be taught, that it really is important, especially as a Christian, to work really hard at what you do.
1: Well, it's good to have a good work ethic. But if you read the book, you kind of read my story where uh, my mother said I was the laziest child she ever saw, and that was was probably true, but my dad worked two or three jobs, you know, to make sure we had food on our table. And I think there was a time in our culture where where young men followed what their dads did, this whole work ethic, you know, deal. But but now today, a lot of times we're looking to get out of doing... We want to do as little as possible, but get as much as possible out of it. Hmm. And so the culture is kind of teaching us that and what happens is when we don't have a good work ethic, we get really bad habits and, and it comes back to to bite us. and so uh, so we encourage guys to work hard because you, you, you get rewarded. And also, you feel good about yourself because you've, you've put in a good day's work for a you know, good salary. So Absolutely. that's what we encourage guys to do.
0: Absolutely. Well, and you think about it, when times are good and things are going well, that's one thing. But what happens if you fall in hard times and you have to hustle? If you don't have a work ethic, then you're really going to be in trouble.
1: Well, it's true, too. And what we're trying to get these young men before they get involved with, with girls Especially getting married is that they need to have that kind of work ethic too because so they can support the woman, even if she does work as they start having kids as well. But you know, because that's really important as well. And a lot of young ladies who still work still want that husband to work as well and be the breadwinner sometimes.
0: Oh, yeah, uh, yep,
1: yep. So that's really important as well. So we we think it's just a really great character to have. And then you mentioned earlier about people hiring people that work ethic will help you get those good jobs.
0: Exactly. And I can say girls want a man who's going to work hard. It's true. <laughs> very <laughs> true. Very true. Well, and on that subject, you also talk about some things that I think are very important from a character perspective. You advise young men to respect girls and women. You would hope, again, this is something they would do innately. But these days, maybe not so much. What would be some of the specifics when you were advising a young man, come on, respect girls, respect women?
1: Well, you know, most guys still have their moms around and she's a woman. And so, uh, and a lot of guys have sisters. And so I say, you know, treat that female you don't know the same way you want to treat your mom or your sister or the way you want somebody to treat your mother or your sister with respect and, and talk to them that they're not... Don't view them simply as as a sex object, because they're people. And I think when you do that, you begin to develop relationships and appreciation for people who are different. But when you tend not to do that, um, you sort of get what you you go for. You know, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of rap music, uh, a lot of rappers have a love hate relationship with with females. They love their mom, but if their mom is really trying to keep them straight, their mom's tough on them, (laughs) and so they'll find women who are tough. But then they'll call women derogatory names, which is not very respectful at all. No. So um so that's what we try to encourage guys to kinda of see again see that big picture and just treat women with respect. You know, open doors, even though women can still open doors. It's just saying, Hey, I appreciate you, it doesn't mean you're weak, it's just showing that sign of respect that yep. you're special.
0: It's great. It's great. I love having doors opened. I love it. It's fantastic. What about some of these important things regarding what you do to live longer and happier. I'm glad that you included some of this stuff when you advise young men to avoid drugs and alcohol and avoid tobacco and marijuana. I thought, this is really fundamental stuff, but you don't hear a lot of people really talking about it too much. Can you talk about why this is such an important part of what you're saying is, you know, the long-term goal of choosing greatness? Well,
1: we did a lot of research on this book, Janet, and uh, just my personal experience, uh, one of my buddies I grew up with uh, did drugs? He he was kind of light drugs, but he did he did marijuana. And today uh, he he's over sixty years old, but he has a hard time seeing. He has a hard time hearing. He has he has to have somebody come to the house and kind of take care of him. He just did marijuana, and his doctor said his situation now is really traced back to to marijuana, what everybody thought was somewhat innocent. Wow! And so. Uh, and marijuana typically is the starting drug. Where actually cigarettes are the starting drugs to marijuana and harder things. So that's important. And then if you deal with alcohol, just if you go look at medical research, you know alcohol can actually, you know, like with marijuana, kill brain cells. Yeah. And so it, all that stuff is detrimental to you, especially if you're driving, and doing different things. So if you want to have a really good body and live a longer time, the less toxic stuff you put in your body. It's pretty simple the longer you're going to live and, right. and the better life you're going to ha- have, you know, because your body is healthy.
0: Very true. Very true. And I think there are a lot of people who never intended to become, for example, hard drinkers. Well, I'm only going to party with my friends a little bit in high school. And then you see them years later. And that's how a lot of alcoholics have developed is I'm just going to drink here. I'm just going to drink there. And I don't think sometimes young people think about the long term possible addiction uh, you know, th- th- that can come from that, from just taking a few steps that maybe you shouldn't have taken in the first place.
1: Well, you're exactly right. And sometimes it's not a few drinks. It's just that one drink and they become alcoholic. Their body yeah. just craves it and and it's tough, you know. So, uh, so you're exactly right.
0: That's really good. What about friendships? This is another category that you include under the wise decisions. What kinds of friendships would you advise young men to seek?
1: Well, you know, a real friend is the one who sticks with you. But a real friend also tells you things you don't want to hear but need to hear because they care about you. Yes. And so, uh, so find a real good friend. A lot of times it won't be the masses or the crowds. It'll be that one individual, maybe two individuals that, that, uh, that will stay with you all the time. And, and those are the people that you want to build a long, lasting relationship with because those are the people that care about you and hopefully the person you can care about them. But often, and you don't have to try and be who you're not. Uh, a lot of guys get caught up in peer pressure and trying to be popular, but that popularity has a price tag where they end up trying to do things that they're not really comfortable doing, but they're trying to please other people that they really don't know that well. So, so friendship is very special, we, we think.
0: Well, it is. Who you hang around with makes a big difference in who you become. I mean, and you don't, again, this is not something you think about a whole lot when you're maybe 15, 16, but in retrospect, when you grow up, you look back and you say, my friendships were very, very important in shaping right. me. Yeah. yeah, it's true. How about discovering the truth about God? This is the most important thing of all. Fundamentally, we have to know who we are and uh, how God made us and who he created us to be. And it's critical to know Jesus Christ. How would you advise a young man to pursue the Lord in his youth?
1: Well, I would just tell, I would simply tell him to study, you know, to look at, to study the facts. You know, if you look at other if you look at religions, religions are typically man trying to please God, right. and a bunch of rules trying to define peace with God. But the thing about Christianity is so cool is that it starts out with God loving us. Yes. And it starts out with God loving us kind of where we are and building a relationship with Him. And so I think it's kind of amazing. Think of a God who um, created the earth and created us intentionally and wanted to be with you as opposed to Believing something just happened, or Big Bang theory, and so uh, that's the kind of God I want to get to know, and that's the kind of God that's planned a life out for me, and so I want to know what my destiny is. But when you can look at other re- at, at religions, and then look at Christianity it's really about a relationship. Uh, it's, it's pretty clear, cut and dried. Most people really would want to do that.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, and you look back when we were talking about respecting women and girls, when you talk about hard work and why that's important, and looking forward to having a family one day. That's super important just there, you know, the kind of husband and father you will be. If you're a man who's pursuing the Lord in your youth, you're going to be that much further along when it's time to build your own family and be a good influence on your family.
1: Well, another thing, too, when you become a Christian, or understand who God is and then who you are in Christ if you become a Christian, then it helps you understand this whole idea of what we call self worth versus self worship. Mm. And you understand you have value, you understand you have a purpose, and you understand you have a destiny. Yeah. And you understand you have a God who creates you, who's planned a great life out for you. And so I'd want to pursue that as opposed to just saying, hey, my life just happened, I'm an accident, or there's no real purpose in being here, I'm just here. So that's, uh, so I think when people hear that, It's sort of an easy choice for them to make.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. I think all of this is so important when you're really kind of walking these young men through all of these important issues that they will face, not just in the future, but are facing right now to get guys to think about these things as they're looking down the long corridor of life that's ahead of them. All really, really good things. And people need to pick up the book and read it and give it to a young man you know and love. It's called Choose Greatness, 11 Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make by Dr. Clarence Schuler, along with Gary Chapman. And Clarence, it was just our honor to have you here. Thank you you so much for being with us.
1: Well, Janet, thanks so much for the opportunity. It's a pleasure meeting you as well.
0: Well, it was great to meet you. Thanks again, Clarence, for being with us. God bless you. Thanks for listening to Janet Mefford today. Always a pleasure to have you along as well. God bless, and we'll see you over at JanetMefford.com. This hour has been brought to you by Preborn. Help us save 350 babies' lives by the end of January through a gift of one free ultrasound. $28 saves one life. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or janetmefford.com.